Hello. Welcome to Episode 8 of the audio podcast, The Holocaust in Hungary. Subtitle, It Can Happen Here. Before I get started, I'm going to explain the term gendarme because it's been used several times in this, in this text. From the dictionary definition, it was a military force, three to 5,000 strong, that existed in Hungary to maintain law and order in the countryside, and later in Budapest. Essentially, they sided fully with the Nazis. This episode is basically a continuation of episode seven I just finished. Due to the second Jewish restriction law, all those Jews who were baptized after July 31, 1919, had to be handled and treated like the rest of the Jewish population. They had to wear the armband with the yellow star and were confined, confined to the ghetto, etc. The only 100% assurance to save Jewish lives was the change of identity, a document which proved that his or her parents were born Christians. Toward the end of the war, there was no time or way to check the validity of these documents. After the war, when the Jews were liberated from Nazi terror, they did not need those forged papers anymore because they started to use their real identity. Several hundred Jews from the ghettos in the suburbs and in the capital were taken away and deported despite their having baptismal certificates because they did not have proof of citizenship. Even Raul Wallenberg did not believe that baptizing would save the Jews from deportation. That was the reason he and Charles Lutz issued neutral countries' passports and other protective documents. The underground organization started to issue forged birth certificates and other identification documents and those papers were never rejected by the authorities. Although the mass deportation was stopped by Hungarian Regent von Horthy on July 3, 1944, the SS units and the Gestapo still had the authority to round up and deport the non-Hungarian citizen Jews from any part of Hungary. They started in the suburbs of the capital. They set up a temporary camp in Rokaskaba and took the Jews marked for deportation there by trucks. By July 19, 1944, 1,200 deportees were gathered in the camp and then brutally forced into the boxcars. After the boxcars were sealed, they took off for Birkenau. On July 17th, two days before the Jews were deported from the temporary camp in Rakoskaba, thanks to corrupt gendarmes, we managed to buy 15 Jewish lives. We could not bring them up to Budapest, but they were hidden in different locations in people's homes. After the war was over, they went back to living their normal lives again. The second and last deportation, despite the stop order, happened on July 24, 1944, in Svarvar, More than 1,500 Jews were rounded up and treated savagely by the Hungarian gendarmes and the Nazi SS unit. They were beaten and forced into boxcars. They were given only two metal buckets and the boxcars were sealed. They were left a very narrow slit for air circulation. After that, they were transferred to certain death at Birkenau. The last two deportations took over 2,700 Jews from Hungary. Several hundred of them had proof of their baptism in their possession, but it was not accepted either by the Hungarian gendarmes or the German SS Brigade. Almost every day we exchange information with Raoul Wallenberg and Charles Lutz, the Swiss Vice Consul in Budapest. Both of them spoke English and German fluently, which made our conversation very convenient. The thousand birth certificate blanks we bought a while ago were nearly used up. When I mentioned it to Lutz, he offered to finance another thousand. That made us very happy because more and more Jews wanted to change their identity. Raul Wellenberg provided a few more buildings through the Swedish delegation for his own purposes. These buildings were not protected houses for the Jews. 
Right away, we started to use the leftover birth certificates and move people into those houses. In three days, we received another thousand birth certificate blanks and identification cards. Sometimes Wallenberg gave us the names and the location of the person who wanted to change their name and religion. Then we drove through the ghetto, picked up the persons, and transferred them to their new and safe place. By the beginning of August 1944, some prominent Jews still managed to elude the transfer to the ghetto. Like the owner of a large company, or the head of a large wine distributing company, and some wealthy Jewish store owners, etc. They were relatively safe up to now, but Hungary was under Nazi Germany's military rule, and the Gestapo was more and more determined to catch those who did not obey the latest Jewish restriction orders. Their survival was diminishing rapidly. Neither Wallenberg nor Lutz could help them because they did not want to move into one of the protected houses. Every one of them had a tremendous amount of personal wealth. They did not have much currency, but gold, precious stones, and diamonds. That was the result of hard work for a lifetime. They did not want to give it up for anything, not even their lives. But they were still scared to death. Charles Lutz, who knew almost all of them, asked if there was any way we could help them to save their lives and property. There were several ways to solve their problem, but in each case we had to take an awful risk. We were thinking about 50 persons, family members included, and about $5 million worth of golden jewelry to transfer them from one side of the city to several different locations on the other side of the capital in broad daylight. We had the birth certificate blanks, the identification papers, and the local registration cards all signed and sealed by the authorized people. We could take them one by one with very little risk, but it would stretch out for a long time and we did not have too much time. Charles Lutz suggested a meeting with Raul Wallenberg himself and a few people of those who were involved mostly. During the meeting, I pointed out to them that the safest way our mission can be carried out. I suggested the transportation should be done by our military ambulance. We can take six to eight people at a time and must cross the Margit Bridge from Pest to Buda. On the other side of the bridge at Buda, a German SS unit was stationed and checked suspicious vehicles. There was a possibility the Nazis would stop us, and that would be the end of all of us in the vehicle. It was wartime. Hungary was under German military rule and mostly because the Gestapo had unlimited authority, the whole plan looked like a suicide mission. Wallenberg and Lutz voted against the mission, but the Jews were willing to take a chance. The war was going on, the capital was bombed almost every day, twice, by the Russian powers or by the Western powers. Life was not safe anyhow. We were young and wanted to help. Despite the opposition and knowing that we are subject to execution on the spot, we still volunteered to carry out the mission. A few words about the military ambulance that we used many times before and would be used in many instances in the future. That ambulance and a few more were made available for us by certain military authorities not sympathizing with the German Nazis or the entire Hitler regime. The ambulance was equipped with all the necessary medical instruments that would be needed in case of serious injury and a well-trained nurse was available at any time. Two of the ambulances were used strictly for saving lives, those lives which were threatened by the German or Hungarian Nazis. On the western part of the divided city, in Buda, we knew people who were willing to help us in our humanitarian mission. They didn't do it for money, they did it because they believed in basic human rights, and they did not agree or accept the government's cruel and unjustified Jewish restriction laws. It took about two weeks to relocate 50-some people to their new locations. We took five persons at a time, 
plus a very small amount of their personal belongings. Sometimes we just barely made it through the Nazi-infested city. Finally, we moved everybody and 53 people could sleep without fear from the Gestapo peacefully during the night. We were glad that we were able to wipe off 53 names from the death list of the Nazis. Meanwhile, the battlefield of the war was getting closer to the capital. Hitler's Nazi government was not asking anymore. They were telling Admiral von Horthy what they wanted him to do. More mobilization was ordered, and more divisions were sent to the front lines, which were on the Hungarian territory already. Everybody knew that the war was lost, and it was just a matter of time before the Communist Red Army will take over the entire country. The sad reality was that the same Communist Party which stopped after the First World War will be in power in Hungary again, and the German brutality will be replaced by Russian terror. It was too hard for the people to understand how and why the British Kingdom and American democracy let Stalin's communism take over a bigger part of Europe. After the Second War ended, and the Cold War started between the Western powers and Communist Russia, the United States and England realized that history proved it that the Western powers made the biggest mistake of the century by helping communism spread all over Europe. Hungary as a small country was in the center of the war and lost approximately 800,000 people of her 10 million population. After the Hungarian government was forced to side with Nazi Germany, all the friendly countries became enemies of Hungary. The region von Horthy and part of the government not sympathizing with Hitler's Nazi regime tried to find a way out of the war without endangering the people's lives or jeopardizing their safety. Although no shortwave radio broadcast or receiving was allowed, except to Germany and its satellite countries, the Hungarian intelligence and the underground had contact with England, Turkey, and Italy on a daily basis. The Gestapo's detector trucks were driving up and down the streets in Budapest. It happened several times mostly during the night, that the Gestapo searched whole city blocks looking for radios. Those who had shortwave radios had to move them from one location to another constantly. Just a personal note here by the editor. When I was about 10 in 1960, my mother explained to me how an AM radio worked. She knew about heterodyne and superheterodyne radios. Those were the radios that had local oscillators that would mix with the incoming frequency to create an intermediate frequency and give you superior reception over the old radios with no oscillator. Those were also the radios that the communists in 1950 and a few years before that were going around Budapest trying to locate. If you had a radio with an oscillator, the communists would find it. My mother had a high school education and had no reason to know that sort of information, but she did. To continue on, Hitler did not trust Regent von Horthy and kept tight surveillance on the regent through his prime minister, Dom Zoje, who informed him daily of what was happening in Hungary and about the future plans of the parliament. The Secretary of Foreign Affairs tried to get a separate ceasefire or peace agreement with the Russian government, but could not accomplish anything. The Western powers turned down all the offers because they were afraid of Stalin. Stalin did not want to have any agreement with the Hungarian government because the Red Army was moving forwards on Hungarian territory already and with only a little German or Hungarian resistance. The Red Army was winning the war and Stalin, just like Hitler, wanted to gain more and more territory in Europe and expand his communist ideology and power all over Europe. 
At the end of 1944, uh, July 1944, the Regent von Horthy, who was tired of German occupation, sent a letter to Hitler and asked him to pull out all the Wehrmacht forces from Hungary and stop the Gestapo's undesirable, brutal behavior against the Hungarian citizens. Hitler did not even bother to answer the regent's plea. The regent von Horthy and the parliament knew that there was not a thing the Hungarian government could do to stop the war partnership with the Third Reich, except use military force. But after his consultation with his cabinet and top military advisors, they came to the conclusion that a move like that would be equal to suicide and make it easier for the Red Army to advance on Hungarian territories. Hitler knew already the inescapable truth that he lost the war, but that did not change his decision to exterminate all the Jews he could. He knew the Hungarian military didn't fight to save Germany. They wanted to save their own country from the communist dictatorship. He knew also that Hungary wants to get out of the war as soon as possible, which move will make his dictatorship come to an end sooner. He knew that Germany, Nazi Germany, was coming to an end. All the satellite nations were taken by the communists, and the fall of Hungary was just a matter of a very short time. He had more than a handful of problems that he couldn't solve. The Regent von Horthy took advantage of Hitler's hesitation, and without further notice, he fired the Nazi sympathizer Prime Minister Dom Zoje, replaced him with one of the top military advisors and his military advisor, Geza Lakatos, on August 29, 1944. The new Prime Minister immediately tried to stop the punishment and brutality against the Jewish population. He did not achieve many results from the Germans. But on the Hungarian side, it was controlled a little bit better than before. In the beginning of September 44, some of the Jews were active in their own defense in Budapest. The Lucatus government, which was now against Nazism anyhow, allowed some Jewish leaders to rent and set up some buildings for the protection of Jewish children. One of them was Otto Komoly, K-O-M-O-L-Y, who was a decorated hero in the Hungarian military during the First World War. With the authorities' approval, he rented over 30 buildings in Budapest for the protection of over 5,000 Jewish children. The Nazi sympathizers did not like his organizing efforts, but they could not just not stop him from doing it. Unfortunately, later in December, he was supposed to attend a meeting after the Nazi raid in the Glass House, but he never returned, because he was brutally murdered, murdered out of revenge by the Hungarian Aerocross gangs. The next section is subtitled, The Last to Quit the War. Since the Nazi sympathizer Zoje was out of the way, the regional Admiral von Horthy wanted the Prime Minister Gezel Lakatos to pick up the connections with the Western powers again. In early September, through diplomatic channels, he arranged a meeting with the American representatives in Switzerland and with the British in Italy. But just like the previous meetings, this one did not bring any results either. The Anglo-American representatives were afraid to make any kind of agreement behind Stalin's back. They were suggesting that if the Hungarian government wants to end the war separately, they have to surrender unconditionally to the communist forces because the Russians allied with the Western powers and represented them on the Eastern Front. Admiral von Horthy hated communism just like all the Hungarian people did. But when he was informed about the indescribable brutality of the communist forces, in the already Russian-occupied territories, he decided to turn to Moscow again. With the agreement of Stalin, through a secret diplomatic channel, at the end of September 1944, 
he sent a ceasefire delegation to Moscow. On October 11, 1944, the temporary ceasefire agreement was accepted by Moscow and the Allied powers and the Hungarian government. According to the conditions of the agreement, Hungarian military forces on the Eastern Front will join the Communist Ar Army and fight against the German Wehrmacht forces. But before that, Hungarian government will immediately declare war against the Third Reich. Because of the pressure from Stalin, the Regent von Horthy accepted the conditions of the temporary ceasefire, but he kept one door open. In the agreement, he preserved the right that before he makes his declaration of ceasefire and terminates the Hungarian government's participation in the war against Russia and the Western powers, he will notify the German consulate and the German officials located in Budapest. The date of the declaration was set for October 15, 1944. The same day, all the radio stations started broadcasting the Regent von Horthy's declaration speech to the Hungarian people. He informed the nation that the big decision to accept the conditions of the ceasefire and a separate peace agreement was made in the best interest of the Hungarian people. The war was lost, he said, and the unnecessary bloodshed, killing of our soldiers by the hundreds every day, has to come to an end. Participating in the war was a terrible mistake. It should not have happened. We are losing our country and what is most precious of all, our sons and husbands dying on the battlefields. After looking at all the options, I could not find any better way out except the ceasefire conditions, directed by the nation we were fighting against. Evidently, Hitler knew about the Regent von Horthy's plan through his informers, because while he was making his radio declaration, members of the security service and the Gestapo kidnapped his son and took him to Germany. Immediately after his radio speech, the former King's Palace, which was the Regent's residence, was seized by an SS unit headed by Otto Skorzenzi, SS colonel. The Regent von Horthy was forced to resign in a written agreement and had to turn over power to Ferenc Szalazy, the leader of the Hungarian Nazi Aerocross Party. A few words about Ferenc Szalazy. He was born in 1896 and was a career officer serving in the military as a staff major. He quit the military in 1935 and became a politician. He founded the Hungarian National Socialist Party. In 1937, his, his party was outlawed and dissolved by the government. Szalazy was sentenced to three years in prison for political activities to undermine the government. In September 1939, he was freed by the order of the Admiral von Horthy. After that, he returned to his political career and became head of the Nazi Aerocross Party. At that time, he was poisoned by Hitler's Nazi ideology. The same day he assumed power, he ordered the release of all the Nazi party members who had been imprisoned by the Regent von Horthy. The battalion which was in charge of the safety of the palace and the vicinity was the first military unit to report for duty to the new Nazi leader. Shortly after the Regent von Horthy's resignation, the new Nazi ruler, Ferenc Szalazy, nullified the ceasefire agreement with Moscow, and within 24 hours, the fighting started again on the Eastern Front. Editors note, these pardons by Zelazy at that time bear a strange resemblance to what's been going on in the United States in the last couple of years with pardons of people who were already convicted. But I digress. To continue, the remaining Jewish population, which counted about 183,000, were breathing a little bit easier while Gaza Lokatos was prime minister. But now, under the anti-Semite government, they were in the gravest danger again. And so were those Palestinian parachuters 
whom the von Horthy regime promised to release. But under the Nazi Zalesi government, it never happened. After the takeover by the Nazis, more and more German military returned to Budapest. The whole country, but mostly the capital, was in big chaos. Nobody knew what was going on, and nobody knew what to do. The new government made the rules and the orders, and the SS and the Gestapo were enforcing their own rules. Naturally, the shadows tried to take advantage of the confusion of the leaders. On October 15th, we made up a transfer order in the German language and in Hungarian. The paper listed 15 Jews by their names, and with this paper, using the military ambulance, we went to the Akafsa Street Ghetto. It's A-K-A-C-F-A, Akafsa Street Ghetto, if I'm pronouncing it right. The guard stopped us, and I asked for the one who was in charge. An 18-year-old boy in Nazi uniform stepped forward and asked what I want. I showed him the transfer paper in the German language, which he could not read. I had to tell him what the paper meant. In 15 minutes, we had the 15 Jews in the ambulance. We had to cross the Margit Bridge going from Pest to Buda, where our safe houses were located. On the Buddha side of the bridge was a Wehrmacht checkpoint. Since we had the signed and stamped transfer paper from the, in the Hungarian language, we just took, showed it that to them. There was no argument, and we were on our way to our destination. Once we were on the Buddha side, we took the 15 people to different locations, which were prearranged. With new birth certificates and new ID cards, they were safe from further terror by the Nazis. Since Ferenc Kozlezi took over this as prime minister and ruler in one person, the life of the Jews became a living hell again. The Nazi Eurocross gangs of young power-hungry punks started to brutalize the Jews again in the capital. The Nazi Eurocross gangs sometimes dragged Jews from the ghetto or from houses marked with the Star of David. They chased them through the streets with their hands above their heads, and they were beating them constantly on the way back home. The Nazis made their own rules and laws. I did witness several times that a gang of Aerocross youths were holding about 15 to 20 Jews, men, women, and children, at gunpoint in the street. They spit on them, used obscene words, and beat them for no reason. Sometimes they blocked the street or the entrance to the ghetto, and nobody was allowed to leave or go into the ghetto. On several occasions, no food could be taken in. No doctor was allowed to go in or treat the sick or dying person. Women were giving birth without any medical help, and even the dead bodies could not be buried. The savage brutality occurred in the other part of the city, too. The Aerocross gangs rounded up a large number, over 600 Jewish laborers from the suburb of Buda. They were chased and beaten across the Margit and Lance bridges. While still on the bridges, they shot them and threw their bodies into the Danube River. They were screaming, begging for their lives, but there was no mercy in the hearts of these 16- to 17-year-old monsters. Some of the victims were still alive when their bodies hit the water. Some got away, those who could run fast enough, because those monsters were not sharpshooters. The crime was a common everyday event on the streets of Budapest. They did their killings right in the open. Everybody who was interested could witness it. What made those kids act like beasts? I don't think we will ever get an answer to that question. The underground tried to get people out of the ghettos, temporary camps, and from marked houses. We were risking our own lives to save people from the savage, brutal Nazi gangs or from the Gestapo. We did witness the massacre of innocent people or heard about it from eyewitnesses, 
In every case, tears were running down everybody's face. Sometimes when we were exchanging information with Raul Wallenberg and talking about the brutal killings, I saw that his eyes were getting wet too. What was hurting us most was that in certain situations, we were unable to help. This marks the end of the audio podcast, The Holocaust in Hungary, subtitled It Can Happen Here, Episode 8. We're on page 60, just finished page 60 of George's book. The next section will pick up with Adolf Eichmann coming back into Hungary and doing his best to kill more Jewish people.